0: Hello, and welcome to another edition of the 66 to 87 podcast here on DK Sports Podcasting Network. I'm your host, Tom Reed, and joined as always by Taylor Haas and Dave Molinari. Uh, a little bit later in the program, we're going to be joined by the great Tom McMillan, who is retiring uh, from the Penguins' career. Uh, Communications department, longtime sports writer, uh, uh, covered the Penguins, also an author and really an interesting guy. It was really interesting to talk to him. I I can't wait for you guys to to hear some of his thoughts over the years. Uh, Grew up here as a fan of the team, ended up working for the team. Uh, And like I said, really interesting Uh, author, very uh, varied interests in his life. So uh, a lot of good stuff uh, there with his interview, but first let's start today. Uh, the one little bit of league wide news that came out was the annual NHL player poll. And while the penguins didn't fare well in the tradition, traditional awards, uh, given out by media, general managers, broadcasters, all that stuff. Uh, Sidney Crosby, once again, uh, getting love from his fellow players, uh, Crosby, uh, Ended up in a first-place tie in a category called who is the most complete player in the league. Uh, he got 23.78% of the vote, as did Patrice Bergeron. Uh, Crosby was also mentioned in several other uh, categories, as including if you needed to win one game, who is the one player, any position you would want on your team. Connor McDavid was first, not surprisingly, at around 37%. Sid was second at around twenty three percent, and then there was a major drop off to Nathan McKinnon at five point eight seven. That's that in itself is interesting, um, and I believe Sid's in one other of the best categories: passer. best, best, best passer. Um, Sid uh, ended up sixth at four point two three percent. Nicholas Backstrom, the ageless Nicholas Backstrom, uh, leading that category uh, at twenty point seven two percent. Uh, and then we'll get in we'll, we'll, let's just go over those categories first before we move into some of the other stuff uh Taylor I like I like that category of most complete player i, I I'd almost and I'd almost like it as an award better than some of the awards that they give out now just your thoughts on on, on the love crosby gets from his fellow players and what you think of, of that award
1: yeah I mean I think that 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 might mean a bit more coming from the players than you know some of the awards that are voted on by broadcasters writers what have you because these are the guys that have to play against um you know crosby and these guys um and i yes i think that's that's pretty meaningful especially um the you know if you need to win one game there's mcdavid who you know the the greatest player in the game right now and then crosby really not that far behind and then a massive drop off like you said um to anyone else I think that one really says it all too but I mean to your point about like the most complete player I'd like to see that be an award too because there's you know there's a MVP uh there's a uh best defensive player but most complete player I think would kind of incorporate you know the offense and the defense together and then maybe the selfie you could see go towards more um uh, just different, a different type of player maybe, but yeah, I think, uh, yeah, that means a lot, uh, for, for players to give him the uh, those
0: Dave, Dave, your thoughts on just the idea of, of an award encompassing most complete player. Now, just for, for our audience that hasn't, hasn't, uh, uh, checked this out yet. The, uh, these are all forwards by the way, that, that were, that, that received the top, uh, five, six votes uh, from the, uh, and I'm trying to see. Uh, didn't look like any other uh, honorable mentions, at least mention uh, regarding defensemen. Dave, what do you, th- what do you, what do you think about that uh, as an award? If, if you, if the, if the broadcasters or writers or the PHWA wanted to to add something like most complete player.
2: Well, as the resident contrarian. <laughs> um, I would say that they should do that only if they wanted to get the uh, total of individual awards that they get out and give out every year up to an even 100. Right. Uh, you know, th- there's already so many trophies, you know, and perhaps if you were starting from scratch, you could make an argument for something like most complete player, but the, you know, the, the, the NHL it, for, for something that that prides itself on on being such a, a team game, and it certainly is, you know, there, there's an awful lot of individual hardware given out.
0: Would you would you be in favor of all of retiring any of the the current awards? Well, what award if you could take out? Let's let's say for a minute we're not going to add the complete player, which of course they aren't going to do it. It's a past we're just bantering back and forth, but right now. If you could remove one individual award, which one would it be?
2: Honestly, that's not an issue I've considered much. I would probably consider getting rid of the Lady Bing. I mean, that's something that uh, some players, some recipients seem almost embarrassed to get because there seems to be an inference, at least in some instances, that it suggests that a, a player isn't interested in in. Being physically involved in a physical game, um, so possibly that one. But again, I have to admit right up front it's, it's not an issue that I've really given much thought to. I liked your answer though. I, think for I, so-
1: I you- Go ahead, I Taylor. Pick, I was gonna. Yeah, if I can pick one, I, I the Masterton. I don't really like what it's turned into because it kind of seems like. It's turned into kind of ranking tragedies where it's, you know, like a serious illness versus like, oh, maybe something you know tragic happened in your family. But then you mix in just a bunch of guys who are just old um, or were bad and how they're good. It just it's just such a it turned into such a weird award. And in, in years where there are multiple nominees, if there's you know, something like an illness or, you know, a family thing, like I talked about, it just seems weird to be ranking those I'm like which one is worse uh and that's what it's kind of turned into so I don't know if I would take the Masterton away but I it, I it's just it's just a weird award now.
2: Well the obvious answer would be to add an award for the oldest player another <laughs> one for the, the most seriously injured player another for oh. the most tragic you know family <laughs> occurrence. Oh man who peed in your Wheaties today really this is the
0: curmudgeon Dave Molinari coming out. Uh, Dave, I want to come back to you for one second because Taylor chimed in on this. <laughs> I'll, be it. Contrived, most complete player. Is this a good? Ref- is this a a fair re- reflection for Crosby? Uh, still being looked on as as a top player, and or is this, or is this maybe players looking at it and saying, uh, these other guys, McDavid, McKinnon. Are getting these other more prestigious awards? Let's let's give a bow to the to the old guard here in Crosby and Bergeron. Which one do you think it might be?
2: I think Crosby and Bergeron are the two most complete players in the league. Uh, yeah. When you combine you know the offensive and defensive games, I, you know, I I don't think I would have come up with any different conclusion than the players did. And I, I, think it's kind of, you know, it's a little bit surprising that they came up with the exact, uh, same total of votes, but that, that really seems quite appropriate. I, you know, they are both, you know, terrific two-way players. Um, you know, Connor McDavid, I think is, uh, clearly the, the greatest offensive talent in the game now. And, uh, Nate McKinnon is a, is a wonderful player as well. But if you're talking about a guy who, who has a 200 foot game, you know, I think, I think Crosby and Bergeron have to be at the top of the list. Yeah, I agree.
0: And that's again, why I think it's really, I think it's a, it's a pretty well worded, uh, uh, honor, whatever you want to call it, not an award, because we have too many awards, no more awards, but this was pretty cool.
2: All right, and you know what? We could we could just give participation trophies to all the players who aren't quite complete enough and haven't uh, been lucky enough to have a family tragedy or major injury.
1: We have we have to acknowledge the the personality part of the poll. Yeah,
0: yeah. I was just I was uh, just gonna, gonna sw- switch over to that category. So the other thing that the NHL does, and there's two more things that the NHL does is they they have some fun here with the player personality uh, best stick tape job which I don't know about that one but the most fashionable player Uh, I know this is an award in the NBA everyone's vying for Uh, the the walk into the arena is is amazing Uh, Taylor or Austin Matthews winning this one which is the most fashionable player Austin Matthews winning this with 21 percent David Pasternak second P.K. Subban he is a fashion plate third Henrik Lundqvist I mean I love the man, but mm-hmm. he didn't even play this year. I, I, he can't be in there. Christopher Letang. Chris Letang comes in fifth. Uh, uh, Taylor, you have we, I think you've commented on this show about mm-hmm. uh, Letang's uh, wardrobe scheme. Uh, your thoughts on, on, the, on the, the five people here selected?
1: See, this could be kind of going in the opposite direction of what you talked about for the main awards. Like, oh, you know, the old guard and all, but because Matthews and Pasternak, the way they dress, they're they're a lot more flashier than Latang. I think like the flashiest kind of suit you'll get out of Letang is, yeah, I think he has like a purple suit or a burgundy suit. Um, he brings out, you know, quite often. But um, yeah, five percent. I don't know. I I would I would have thought he would have done a little bit better, but uh, not surprised to see Matthews and Pasternak win now. The it's not part of this, but the NHL Fan Awards, I know they are doing um, a best-dressed one of their own where fans can vote. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with that. I don't think we've gotten the results of that yet. Um, I think each team has a nominee. For the record, I voted, and I voted for Matthew Joseph. So uh, not helping the tank's case there. But
0: (laughs) 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 Subban always brings a strong hat game. Always with a good always with a good lid. It's he's always going to be the top five because of that lid. Uh Dave, your thoughts? Your Oh, your I, thoughts, I I think it's pretty obvious. Fashion.
2: I I you know, I think it's pretty clear that they should have one trophy for the best pants, another for the nicest <laughs> socks. You know, everybody wears clothes, so you know, everybody should get a trophy or or at least a plaque. <laughs> All right, who's the best? I know this
0: year it was only your, your division, but you guys—you guys are pros. You know the league. Who is the best dressed uh, scribe in the NHL?
1: Oh my God! It's um, an
2: oxymoron.
1: You know what? <laughs> I've I've talked about this with like um like other writers before. Like each kind of city's writers dresses very differently. Like, you know, like Montreal or LA, they come to town and like they dress a lot differently than people, uh, writers in Pittsburgh dress. Um, So it's very interesting. If we're ranking, you know, beat city, like city beats as a whole, Pittsburgh would not be near the top. But,
0: Uh, We'd be good in the hoodie game. I, th- I think. I think with <laughs> led by our fearless leader would be very, very good in the hoodie game. I think Arpon Basu in Montreal. You, you, you hit it on the head. Montreal, those guys are always look good. good, and Arpon looks like he lives in his suit. Um, all right, let, let's. Let's. Uh, oh, the last thing, I guess, uh, Sydney Crosby. No surprise, <laughs> no runaway in the most superstitious player. I'm sure both of you guys have either talked to him about this or what is his, is there one, is there one that you guys like more than any of the others that that he has? And he's, he's, he has like a million and a half.
1: Trailer. Well, I think, um, yeah, I think so Crosby, you, he had 27% of the vote. No one else had, um, next was Froelich with 5%. So this was not really up for debate. Like he, he ran away with it. Um, the one that stands out is the one that kind of, um, you know, they drew attention to on his thousandth game. Um, he has several, just well, so many that are just related to like pregame warmup type things. But one of them is, you know, like the same time of warmups, he always stops at the same spot, like the same letter on the, um, the PPG Pants Arena wordmark on the ice. And he unties both of his skates and we saw it during the warmups before, you know, game a thousand. Uh, when he did that, they all, everyone, all the other penguins, you know, his teammates dropped to the ice and they did it too. Um, and I just thought that was so funny that, uh, you know, that, that came up. I, I remember I asked the like, whose idea was, was that? And he, he said it was a secret, but the way he said it, it sounded like it came from him. But, um, it, but it's just so funny that he has so many and so many of them are, you know, Ingrained in, like his teammates' minds. Um, the one that come, one that it's not like a regular thing. But Joe Vitale talked about this on the Spit and Chiclets podcast, where a couple years ago, um, when they went undefeated in the month of March, uh, the f- the first game of that winning streak, Vitale had told Crosby, he was playing a song uh, in the locker room, and Crosby was like, "Oh, you know, this is what I listened to a lot over the summer when I went to Italy or whatever," and told him the story. And they won the game. And then, you know, the next game they come back and Crosby tells the story to Vitaly again. And Vitaly's like, yeah, you already told me this. And then they won the game. And then game three, Crosby comes in and tells Vitaly the same story. And by then Vitaly realizes what he's doing. And, I mean, that winning streak they went on, like Vitaly said, like he did this every single time. <laughs> and um, so just the extent of the little things he'll pick up on, uh, it, it, it's just insane. So there's no way he's ever gonna, not going to win that while he's in the league.
0: Dave, do you have any superstitions, pre-game superstitions for yourself? You're a Hall of Famer. Uh, what, do you have any game superstitions that, that's brought this great career on for you?
2: Uh, the, the one thing I like to try to do before every game is to correctly find my way to the arena. <laughs> if, <laughs> if, if I'm able to pull that off, then I feel like the uh, you know the game is off to a really good start for me. You sound like Ken
0: Hitchcock, who when he was did some scouting because never never knew where he was going because he always came in the same way with the team. All right, we'll be back in, in, in coming up in the next segment. We're gonna get into our player evaluations. Uh Chris Latang is up under the microscope. Uh we'll kick around some other topics. It's always Dave Molinari's favorite, the round table, and in the mood he's in today. You don't want to miss it. Welcome. We'll be back with the 66 to 87 podcast. Welcome back to the 66 to 87 podcast. Uh, We'll be joined a little bit later by Tom McMillan, uh, who is retiring after a long and distinguished career in the Penguins communications uh, department, also a former sports writer and still a very good author of uh, very diverse topics of books. Uh, But right now, our favorite category, our favorite segment, the roundtable. And tonight, we'll start out with the player evaluations. And we're up next is Chris Letang. Uh, Chris Letang, uh, coming off a pretty decent season after he got by the, at least the beginning of it. Uh, kind of a rough start to his year, but ended up not bad. Uh, seven, or seven goals, 38 assists, 45 points, um, and was a point-a-game player in their six-game series uh, against the Islanders. Uh, LeTang is 34 years old. Uh, he's going to, there's going to be some interesting talk coming up here in the next couple of weeks. We'll get to that in a second about, uh, what they're going to do with his contract wise, because he's coming into his final season. But Taylor, let's just start with his season in general. Uh, what did you think of, of how Latang played?
1: Yeah, I mean, it wasn't the, the best season of his career. But, you know, when you take into account his age and, and you know, I, I mean, we talked about coming into this season, you know, how is this condensed schedule going to be on maybe some of the older players? Um, I mean, he played uh, every game except for one. And this was one of his better seasons. Like you said, um, uh, 45 points. He was two points shy of leading all defense in, uh, in scoring, which, which is huge. Um, Adam Fox had, had 47 points, uh, Letang had out 45. So for him to be at, at this age and then in, in such a unique, uh, season and to still be producing the way he is offensively, that's, uh, that's huge for him. Yeah.
0: Dave, uh, almost a tale of, I don't want to say two seasons, but a tale of a really woeful start and then really seemed to get it together, uh, around mid season and took it right down through the stretch.
2: Yeah, um, I mean, w- with the way he started the season, you could be forgiven for wondering if uh, he was nearing the end of the road. But he really did elevate his game quite a bit after after that start, and occasionally played at uh, a level that you know would justify you know some some Norris Trophy support. Um, you know, that's that's based on a full season's performance, not, uh, you know, really good play for part of the season. But he, he did, you know, make the point again that he, that he is still capable of uh, taking his game to a, a level that very few defensemen can reach. Uh, and, you know, I think that's really a tribute to the, the commitment that he's made to his conditioning throughout his career. I mean, he's really fanatical about it, and you know, at, at his age, when when he's in his mid thirties, you know, he's being able to reap the rewards for that.
0: And just a, a minutes eater, my goodness! Uh, I, I don't have the playoff numbers in front of me, but it just seemed like he never left the ice. And and as you said, Dave, uh, age uh, to for a guy that age to be able to play and play the way that he does. I mean, he's not this is not Zden- Zdeno Chara. Uh, just kind of lumbering up and down the ice. I mean, LaTex still gets up the ice, gets into plays. Uh, Taylor, that's, that's uh, pretty impressive for a, a man of that age.
1: Yeah, and especially given the injuries the Penguins had at, at defense um, to some key defensemen, uh, you know, through stretches of the season, um, they did rely on him heavily, you know, in the regular season. And you know he wasn't with his his regular partner for for you know some amounts of time, uh, in Dumoulin. Um I mean he he was with Joseph for a bit. He was he he played with several different partners, but uh, when they ever had that stretch, so for him to produce the way he did and have the success he did later on in the season, uh, given all the circumstances, um, yeah, that, that's it's just a, such a strong season from him.
0: All right, so the. Uh... As we as we mentioned in a previous podcast, you know, getting Malkin's situation. Uh, both both of these two players are will go into their unrestricted free agent season unless they are signed here in the summer. Malkin's situation is complicated by the surgery on his knee. Uh, we won't see him until you know who knows after training camp, whenever early in the season. Uh, but Latang certainly seems healthy. Uh, the Penguins know what they have in Chris Letang. Uh, Dave, is there a reason that they, they would not offer an extension uh, this summer?
2: Well, I, I think they will certainly talk contract with, with both Letang and uh, Malkin. Uh, you know, what kind of money and what kind of term Ron Hextall will be willing to offer either of them. You know, really can't say at this point, so certainly... Uh, Hextall has not tipped his hand uh, about, you know, how, you know, how how much he's willing to commit to to either of those guys, but but he's made it clear that the Penguins are at least interested in in having conversations with those guys about extending their careers uh, for at least a, a bit longer. So I asked you this the other day
0: with the with uh, we've been asking everybody or everybody you two. Uh, so if you're if you're the general manager what kind of term and contract would you look to to give uh, Latang, Dave?
2: well I, I mean I, I don't think you can view that in isolation I, I think you have to look at it in terms of what mo- other moves he might be considering uh, you know right now in in their system they they don't have, you know, a, an obvious successor. A, a year ago, I would have said that I thought John Marino might be ready to step into that role. But based on his play during the past season, I think he might still need a little more time to, to grow into that. Um, I, you know, when, when you're talking about a guy who, who's in his mid-30s, especially one, you know, I mean, uh Latang plays bigger than he is, and, and you know that that's going to take a, a toll on you. Um, I certainly wouldn't be interested in making a particularly long term commitment to him, but I'd be willing to discuss two or three years. You know, depending on what sort of money he was uh, interested.
0: Taylor, where would you where would you go as far as term and 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 uh, money?
1: I think, yeah, three years um, would be pretty reasonable. Um, money, it's hard to say. Uh, I mean, he makes uh, $7.25 million now. That he's, so he's the 16th highest paid defenseman. Um, so relatively speaking, that's not a bad cap hit. Um, and he is uh, 34. So, But with defensemen, um, I don't know how much of a – we're seeing other teams willing to commit, you know, term um, to to defensemen. Like, you know, the one that comes to mind is uh, Pit, uh, Pietrangelo. He's 31 at the start of this season. He signed a deal, um, I think, seven years uh, with Vegas. So I mean, until he's 38 for 8.8 million. Um, so we're seeing, and there's a couple other examples of that. I think Truba um, kind of signed a similar contract, and uh, so. I think giving him, still having him, you know, maybe around the same salary, um, in for maybe three, four years um, until he's kind of around, you know, 38 years old, um, would be kind of would, would be reasonable to expect from. Especially he's a right-handed defenseman, a number one right-handed defenseman. Um, those guys tend to have pretty good contracts uh, around the league. Okay.
0: Uh, just, we, we kind of danced around the subject, but I just want to give our listeners an idea. In the regular season, uh, LaTang, 34 years old, 24 39 of ice time. That was 12th most in the league. In the playoffs, it, it just did, like I said, it seemed like he was on the ice for half the game, almost 28 uh, 42, which was sixth. Uh, and obviously, though, he's, he's not playing anymore. So, uh, other guys still going on, but. Uh that's some serious ice time for a guy that uh is that age and and again showed that he can still handle it. All right. Uh as we mentioned, there there are playoffs still going on. Uh we are in the semifinals. Don't call them conference finals, uh, because um the what would be the Eastern Conference is well representative. I think coming into this guy uh, under this uh this round, guys, I think there were seem to be two clear favorites, and correct me if I'm wrong. I think a lot of people thought Vegas, after getting by Colorado, uh, would certainly be favored over the Canadians. Uh, and then in the East, the defending champs, uh, Tampa Bay Lightning, uh, against those New York Islanders, those plucky Islanders. Uh, both series are at one-one. Taylor, if if you had to pick maybe one upset, if, if if who has the better chance of getting out of of of, of into the finals would it be the canadians who has all of canada and trying to break that 27 28 year streak of not winning a cup or would it be the islanders
1: i'd pick the canadians um because of carrie price um and how how he's stepped up in these playoffs that's such a such a fun goaltending battle um in that series with vegas um I'd I'd have to lean lean towards them. Uh especially given how well Tampa has played um you know, up until these playoffs, Kucherov stepping up, um, very healthy Kucherov stepping up uh, <laughs> the way the way he has. Um, I I would bet on Tampa to uh go back to the finals. But uh, if I had to pick an upset, I, I would pick Montreal. But even then, uh, I, I, I think that could go either way. I think this series might go uh six, seven games.
0: Yeah, I, I just uh, uh, Price was outstanding in game two, uh, especially in the third period, where to me, if that game goes another five minutes, it's probably going to overtime because Vegas finally turned it on in the third period. And it was they were unbelievable. But Price was able to withstand it. Dave, if you if you First of all, if you agree, you're the resident contrarian. Maybe you have, maybe you have the Islanders and Habs both advancing. But if not, who would you pick? What's the one so-called upset, maybe of those two, two uh, semifinals?
2: Well, I don't. I mean, I wouldn't pick either upset to, to happen. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, if I were forced to uh, select one, I would probably go with the Islanders simply because I think they have a better team than the Canadians do uh you know Kerry price has been probably the best goaltender in these playoffs um but uh you know i I would go you know with with the the better of, of the two teams but that said i I'm still anticipating a a Tampa Bay Vegas final
0: yeah I agree and I would I I, I I hear you, Taylor, but I, I agree with Dave um, on the Islanders, too. And I base that more on just how good Vegas can be. Uh, they looked really good in that first game after the, a shaky first period. Um, game two, I thought they may have thought it might have been a little too easy in game one. But we'll see. You, Taylor, your point about Carey Price is well taken. I mean, he's been terrific and... There's no question. I mean, he we know goaltenders can get into the heads of shooters. Uh, so that's going to be really interesting.
1: Uh, I, also, I can't stand Islanders fans, so I'm not going to pick them for anything. <laughs> <laughs> they don't deserve happiness. Literally last night, one, like, <laughs> one message would be on Instagram, like Lou Lamorello's team is in the semifinals. It's like we talked about Lamorello on the podcast in April, Like, it, and I'm getting DMs about Lou <laughs> Lamorello because um, I – said he should let players grow beards or something. I don't know, but (laughs) I'm still getting messages from Islanders fans. You you know, Um, they,
0: I, I I gotta tell you this. I've been, uh, it is my, it is my task in life to make a 66 to 87 podcast t-shirt. And now I may have the slogan. They don't, they, what was it? They don't, they don't deserve what?
1: Islanders fans don't deserve happiness.
0: (laughs) Don't deserve happiness. That reminds me of one of my favorite columnist's lines about fans who said, David Whitley in Orlando, every fan should lose every game. Uh, So, okay, uh, Taylor, you did mention uh, the very fresh and lively Nikita Kucherov. Dave wrote an interesting story piece the other day on the the long-term injury list uh, injury reserve, injured reserve list and how the loopholes that exist in this, Dave, as I'm reading it, all I'm thinking about is taxes for some reason. I'm thinking how really rich people don't have to pay taxes. They find ways, they find those nice little loopholes to kind of get away from things. Uh, in this case, the uh, the the everyone of course is is kind of been struggling with the cap this year because it's been a flat flat it's going to be flat the next couple years Eddie Olchek was saying he covered a couple of of the of uh, the Vegas games where they only dressed like 15 or 16 skaters uh because they for that that day they that's what they had to do uh explain a little bit about what's going on and what Tampa Bay was able to do with Nikita Kucherov uh, that certainly had a couple of players, uh, specifically Dougie Hamilton, uh, a little upset about what they did this year?
2: Well, I, I don't think it's just Kucherov that, that was the issue there. Uh, for anyone who might not be aware, he had hip surgery, uh, missed the entire regular season, along with his 9.5 million, I believe it is, cap hit. Uh, but was able to return for uh, game one of the playoffs and is the leading scorer in the playoffs. Uh, but in addition to that, the uh, uh, Lightning made a trade with Ottawa, brought in two players with uh, who have been forced to retire because of injuries, oh. but who brought with them over $7 million in salary cap hits that were able to go on to long-term injured reserve and, and thus give uh, the Lightning the ability to re-sign and not, not only re-sign most of their own players, uh, but to actually trade for uh, defenseman uh, David Savard a- at the deadline. So they were able to really load up, and you know, Dougie Hamilton's off-repeated line now is that uh, you know the the Hurricanes lost to a team that was eighteen million dollars over the cap ceiling, and you know that's how the uh, the Lightning got there. Uh, Kucherov was only uh, you know a part of that puzzle.
0: Dave, you mentioned in your story that that again that the Tampa Bay did nothing illegal here this was, uh, this is, this is set up because they just took advantage of the loopholes. What would you suggest or, or, or are you fine with the way it stays? Or do you think that they, uh, think the league should kind of step in and, and
2: try to close some of those? Well, I, and, and I'm not sure what would have to be involved in doing that. I don't know if that's something that would have to be negotiated with the players association. Uh, but you know, you can certainly make a case that, that, Teams shouldn't be able to trade for what I characterized as dead salaries, you know, simply to to generate cap space. You know, at least in the case of Kucherov, Tampa Bay had to get by without the services of a of a world-class player for the regular season. Now it had it had enough other really good players that it was able to survive that, but at least you know there was there was a price to be paid for that, you know. In, in the case of the two dead contracts, you know they they gave up two serviceable players in the trade, but you know the salary cap space clearly was worth a whole lot more to Tampa Bay than two, you know, so so contributors were. Yes, uh, Taylor, jump in there. What you, what would you?
0: You know, if you were if you were Gary Bettman, what would you do there?
1: Yeah, I the like Dave said, trying to get out you know, those situations like like what Lightning did with Gabrick, where they traded for him just so they're basically just trading for more cap space. Um, that ha, they have they have to do something about that because that's pretty much just giving teams a soft salary cap. Because like for the teams that can afford to, they can go out and because there are a couple of players like that around the league, they can go out and, and, and buy one of those situations in a trade. And then they're basically just paying because it, you know, they get more cap space, but they still have to pay those actual dollars. So the teams that can afford to do that, um, that have the actual money, they can buy cap space, which isn't right. So I would do that. It's hard to say what can be done to avoid Um, the Kucherov situation, I don't think it's as simple as just bringing the salary cap over into the playoffs just because of the way uh, the NHL salary cap is not like the NFL salary cap where like you go into it with the season and that's it, you're done. The NHL salary cap fluctuates, um, a team's cap fluctuates on a day-to-day basis. You have players have, you know, daily cap hits that are calculated by, you know, their cap, uh, hit divided by the days in the regular season and, um, So depending on who's on the roster, those daily cap hits aren't always the same uh, for a team as a whole. It just has to add up to less than 81.5 or whatever the cap ceiling may be in the end. Um, So the problem with bringing the cap over into the playoffs is that you don't know how many days are going to be in the playoffs. So you can't calculate a daily cap hit. Um, So I don't know what I would do with that. um, But I think one answer is that they at least just have to be on the active roster for a, a preset, a day, I don't know how many days during the regular season. So they don't have to play, but they have to at least be on the active roster, meaning not on long on injured reserve. Um, their cap, it has to count. So that means, so in Tampa's case, if you know that were the case, and Kucherov would have had to been on the active roster one day, one day they would have had to find a way to fit in that extra, that additional 9.5 million. Because the way long-term my injured reserve is, it's supposed to be temporary cap relief to to replace that player while they're out. Um, not what we're seeing kind of happen now when the players are for the whole season. So if, if it could be like that where you're actually replacing that player, um, but you could fit that player in otherwise, um, I, that's what I would do. Just They have to be on the roster for whether a day or a couple of days during the regular season.
0: Got it. All right. When we come back, we will be joined by uh, Tom McMillan, uh, who's had a long and uh, very fulfilling career. That's both a, a, a sports writer, an author, and working uh, in the communications department for the role overseeing the communication department for the Penguins. So stick around. He's got some great stories. Welcome back to the 66 to 87 podcast, and this is normally the time that I would introduce our uh, guest, but I'm going to let uh, Dave Molinari have these honors since he's known him for so many years. Dave, uh, take it away.
2: Well, our, our guest today is Tom McMillan, who's going to be retiring from the Penguins at the end of this month, although he will remain uh, in kind of an informal advisor capacity for them uh he's been involved with the penguins really in a variety of roles since the earliest days of the franchise uh starting out as a fan and then he was a beat writer at the post-gazette for a number of years uh covering teams that included the first two cup winners uh after that he had, took on a few other media jobs and uh Ultimately joined the, uh, the Penguins media relations department and, and rose to the level of vice president of communications, which is a, a job he held for quite a few years. Um, he's the most talented writer ever to work the Penguins beat. And uh, in addition to his hockey work, he has authored several books on subjects as diverse as Flight 93 and, and the Civil War. And uh, Tommy, th- thanks for doing this. And you grew up at a time when baseball and football were the dominant sports in Western Pennsylvania. How did you come to be attracted to hockey?
3: Yeah, well, Dave. First of all, thank you for that introduction, and thanks to all of you, uh, Taylor and Tom, for having me on. Uh, introduction a little overdone, Dave, but I appreciate it anyway. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it is. It, it's hard to. It's hard to explain that to people now. How unimportant hockey was in, in the first number of years of the, of the Penguins. And it, it, it wasn't a part of, the, you know, the, the culture, the school, you know, your kids didn't play hockey. Uh, I remember when, I, when I, I, I first started, the Penguins came in 1967. I was certainly aware of it, but wasn't a fan yet. I had a friend of mine in high school, it was the spring of 1972, dragged me kicking and screaming my first game. Because he wanted to say, we got to go see the Boston Bruins. They had these guys named Phil Esposito and Bobby Orr, who I'd heard of. And so I went to my first game. His name was Tom Payne. He drags me to this game. I didn't want to go, uh, and it, it it was mesmerizing. I it, it it's hard to imagine how from that day forward, hockey became my favorite sport. It was one game, and and sometimes I think when people talk about how it's it's so much better in person than on television or any other venue or any other platform. That's true and it got me that day. And looking back now, uh, Jim Rutherford was on that team. He didn't play the game, but he was on that team. And here in my last year with the Penguins, although he, he's left us, he was the general manager during my last season. So it, it's quite a, a book ending that makes you that makes you shake your head. But it was that, Dave, and immediately we all went out we went out and we bought street hockey sticks and started playing street hockey, and everyone else in Bellevue where I grew up thought we were weird. And I played a little bit in high school, played beer league hockey for a long time. And, you know, I, I think as as a lot of us, as I wanted to become a sports writer, I, I hoped to cover hockey. But at the same time, hockey wasn't a big sport back then. So uh, I ended up actually started in uh, some really small suburban papers. And then I, I I went to the Post-Gazette to cover Pitt in 1982. Uh, and then uh, and and then hockey kind of happened. That's a long answer. I know you have some more questions, but but it was basically that it was one game. And the one thing I will tell you, nice little ending to this story, that that friend of mine, Tom Payne. Obviously, you you sometimes just draw apart by distance. But the first day I had the Stanley Cup in 2009, I hadn't talked to him for years. I tracked him down and I said, "Stay home from work tomorrow and keep your kids home from school." And the first place I took the Stanley Cup was Tom Payne's house. So that was. That, that, that was kind of a neat reunion for us because not to say that I would couldn't have covered the penguins, but he dragging me to that game, got me interested in hockey and ended up being a, you know, a, a wonderful career.
2: Uh, going back to those days, uh, in your early fandom, Tommy, did, did you have a favorite player? And is there a game from those days that stands out to you? Yeah, there, there are, a, there are a lot, Dave, uh, I I was there
3: uh, the night the Penguins. It was the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, which was a big game when the Penguins scored five goals in two minutes and seven seconds. Uh, I will never forget that game. It's been referenced since then. Uh, and and I was also there. You you and I I think were as we didn't know each other. We were at some of the same games. There was a game I'll never forget. It was an exhibition game with the Cleveland the <laughs> Cleveland Crusaders of the WHA, and it ended up you know, 1974, into a massive brawl. They, the, the game was called off. Steve Durbano and Battleship Kelly were fighting so many, so, so many members of the Crusaders uh, that they had to call off the game. Pierre LaRouche was a rookie that year. That was his first training camp. And, and uh, as I often remind him now that we're friends, uh, Pierre was my, favorite, uh, my my favorite penguin in those early days.
1: Tom, you kind of touched on this earlier, but what exactly got made you want to get into writing about hockey uh, specifically? And then once you did get into writing, is there a particular game that you covered that that made a real impression on you?
3: yeah, the the first thing Taylor was just I wanted to be a sports writer, a news you know newspaper sports writer. And I think like a lot of us, I started in high school in the local paper and and uh, I went to Point Park. Uh, and hockey was my favorite sport, but it it, it wasn't going to be a hockey writer at all costs, again, because back then, it wasn't a prime job, you know. As as Davey and I started on the beat, I mean, one of the reasons we, as young guys, got the beat is because nobody wanted that beat. It's hard to imagine that now, but it was it was Steelers, Pirates, Pitt, and then a distant uh, link to, to the Penguins. But you know, my my passion for hockey was there. It was it was clearly my favorite sport. When I went to the Post Gazette, I, I was hired to cover Pitt, and it was. You know, this is this sounds so far, but it was Dan Marino's senior year. They were number one in the country. That was a prime beat at the time. Um, but, you know, that the, the people that posted it knew I loved hockey. So I did get a very unique assignment, which uh, I, I shake my head to, to this day, even though I wasn't on the beat. In the spring of 1984, uh, it, the Penguins were a terrible team, and it looked like they might get the number one pick overall and they thought we should send somebody to Montreal to follow around the kid named Mario Lemieux for a week during the junior playoffs to write a story about him. Uh, and I got that assignment. That was my first big hockey assignment. And, uh, and when you look back for the context of history, it was amazing. I'll, I'll never forget, you know, walking up the steps to Mario's house to meet him for the first time. And I think later, you know, later he became my boss. So from that point on, I thought, boy, I'd really like to do this. And then through a series of circumstances in 1987, uh, the Post-Gazette offered me the beat and and I took it. But one of the things, then you guys may shake your heads, Dave will remember this. Hockey was so unimportant at that time. that until 1987, the Post-Gazette did not travel to all the road games. So one of my my conditions of taking the beat in 1987 was we had to travel to all the road games and make this this a major league beat. And, of course, uh, uh, the rest is history.
1: Once you uh, transitioned into writing, did you have a favorite player to to interview as, in your days as a reporter, and, and why him?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Of course, anybody who covered Mario, you know, Mario is is at the top of the list. At, you know, for for any number of reasons. But if you put Mario aside, there are, there are uh, a couple that stand out. the 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 one that stands out the most to me is Paul Coffey. Uh, he was a fabulous player. He came to Pittsburgh, you know, with that Stanley Cup pedigree, and he knew how to work the media. And he and I had one of those, you know, Dave and I were the were the beat writers at that point. There weren't any other media. We had our own contacts. Dave had his guys, and I had my guys. Okay. And, and and Paul Coffee was my guy. Uh, and to this day, we laugh about that. You know, when he wanted to get a message out, uh, he would. He would say something to me i'd write a story about it and dave had you know th- it that happened more back then because there were such f- there were so few reporters there were so many games those early years we shared the beat together where dave and i were the only media members in the locker room so uh he was special rob brown i think dave will laugh he was just such a, a, a charismatic character uh really enjoyed covering him and then you know i, I think you could probably tell guys you have seen guys like troy loney who did some tv and phil bork and bob airy I mean you can see their personalities on TV they were like that in the locker room I'm not surprised that Phil and Bobby became broadcasters and Troy could have been he just chose not to be so those were among those were among the special players I do think Dave and I talked about this a little a little differently you had a little while ago because there were so few media members, you had different kinds of relationships with players back then than you did now not that you were friends but different kinds of professional relationships because you talked to them so often one- on-one. Dave would you agree with that if you're under yeah,
2: yeah 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 ab- absolutely Tommy it's uh, it's a very different business now than it was uh, a few decades back. Yeah Taylor and Tom there were our first couple of years
3: in the beat a PR person was didn't even let us into the locker room we just waited about 5 minutes and then we walked in mm. it was it was such we traveled you know the teams traveled commercially we were on the team bus we were on the plane flying with the players it was a it, it was something that's almost unfathomable today but as a reporter it gave you the kind of access that you could never get today so uh, I, I'm, I'm glad I, I, I covered when I did, because you just had those kinds of relationships. Again, sorry for the long answer, but you, uh, <laughs> looking back on your career when it's this long, it, it, it jogs. I knew this would happen. It jogs a lot of memories.
0: Hey, Tom, how did you finally end up uh, uh, making the transition uh, from uh, a journalist and a sports writer uh, into the Penguins uh, media relations department?
3: Yeah, when I was when I started as a writer, I could never imagine I would go to the dark side of PR, Tom. You can imagine that. You know how <laughs> writers think about that. It's true. Um, you know, opportunities come up in life. They actually, uh, the Post-Gazette uh, and press went on strike during the 92 conference finals. Dave and I were there. I was on the game one of the 92 conference finals against Boston. I was filing my running story for the AM Post-Gazette. Uh, and was told, uh, don't send in your story. The truck drivers just went on strike. So the papers went on strike for nine months. Um, I left at that point to just go independent hockey media. Uh, And I did that for three years. Did a talk show, edited a paper on the Penguins, wrote some columns, was doing a lot of different things. I was probably looking to go into radio at that point. I really enjoyed the radio part of it. The Penguins came to me in 1993 and offered me this job. They decided they wanted someone from the media to run their media. It just didn't feel right. I, I I thought in my head, I should have taken it, but my heart just wasn't there. So I turned it down uh, and they came back three years later in 96 and I was going to turn it down again just because I was a journalist. And I thought, you know what? They're not gonna come back a third time. Why not try this? What's the worst thing that could happen? You could fail and probably get a job as a writer or something. And and so that, that kind of started it. But from that point on, you can imagine how different the job was in 1996 than it became in the 21st century. Completely different job.
0: Sure. Uh, I would think one of the perks uh, in switching over, if you're covering a team that's or if you're working for a team that's good enough, uh, you, you might have a chance to see your name end up on the Stanley <laughs> Cup. And you, you'd referenced this earlier about taking the cup over to your friend, Tom Payne. What was it just like for you and your family uh, to get to see your name on a Stanley Cup?
3: Yeah, that was, I can tell you, Tom, it, it's not something you even think about. That wasn't a dream, a goal. It was unfathomable to me. Um, they never told me. I remember in the, you know, I think the cup comes back engraved in early October. So it would have been October of 09 and I was saying, I need the list of names of who's on the cup because the media is going to want it. Uh, who you know? Who made it onto the cup? What's it look like? What's the picture? And someone sent me a picture, and I'm reading through it, and there's my name. And it was I. I had to. I'm not a person who generally gets emotional. I had to close the door in of my office. I I did get a little teary eyed because it was it was so stunning. I didn't imagine. I still, you know, I'm, I'm humbled. I don't think I deserve to be on there, but they decided that there was going to be on there. And I always, so it was, you know, it, it's something I, I cherish very much. I still shake my head. I'm a little embarrassed by it in some ways, uh, but I'm humbled by it and honored. And uh, I, I I did feel bad for Sid though. And I've told him this because I was in the bottom line of staff and my name is right above his on that cup. It's <laughs> his first cup. And for years, the next two or three years after that, whenever, whichever TV, TV was NBC or whoever was doing their Stanley cup promos for playoff games, they would show the great names on the cup and they went they would do Gordie Howell, Bobby, or Mary Lemieux, Wayne Gretzky, Sidney Crosby. And you could always see my name. And I thought people would say, who's this goof?
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> I've never heard whose names on above Sid, but it was, it wasn't something I, I expected it. It, uh, It gives you a sense of wonderment, even even today. I'm sure.
0: Hey, Tommy. One of the things is, uh, as as Dave alluded to uh, in the introduction, is you did not stop writing uh, even even after you make the transition. And I think people would be interested. They would probably think, oh, he's going to. If Tom McMillan's going to write books, he's going to write maybe some different eras of the Penguins. Uh, you took it, uh, uh really, uh, quite a different direction, a book on flight 93
3: and a book on the civil war, kind of what inspired you to do this. And yeah, I've got, I've got another book on the civil war coming out this summer. You know, I, you, you love to write Tom. Um, and I love to read and I always loved history. I don't know if they still do this, but back when Dave and I were in school, they gave you these tests and to see what you should, what career you should follow. And somehow they pick for your personality and your likes and my top two choices were newspaper that they came back to me with were newspaper writer and history teacher yeah so history's always been kind of my hobby and, and you you guys know this too you spend so much time uh, on our jobs with sports people think that all we do is come home and then watch sports constantly. You need something else to balance your life. History was always that for me. I always loved the Civil War and, and doing research. And through a series of circumstances, actually with the Penguins, because we did something with the, the Flight 93 folks, because that, that, that plane crashed, you know, so close to Pittsburgh. I, I, I just saw an opening. to Nobody had written a book on Flight 93, and I thought, why not? You love history. You like to write. Give it a sh- Nobody's done this. Give it a shot. I did, it against all odds, I got an agent, and the book got published, and it's still selling. And it was, you know, I made some great. I volunteer out there at the Flight 93 site, made some great uh, connections. That opened the door then, because I've as, as Dave knows, I've been going to Gettysburg for thirty years. Uh, you know, that's uh, always the, the the first weekend after the penguin season end, I go to Gettysburg. That clears my head. I just I love it, and uh, and I thought. You know, there's so there have been so many books written about the Civil War. Is there one? I loved it so much. And I you, you can find some niche topics. So my Civil War books are really niche topics for, you know, for for Civil War buffs, so to speak. Flight 93 is more of a general book. But I had one that came out a few years ago and another one coming out this summer. And it, uh, it it's a hobby that I would like to keep going because it, it combines my two loves. And uh, it gives me again that you, I, I think you probably do. You need that balance. Uh, against sports sometimes so that you're not doing it constantly so you can do your job well. So that kind of led to it. And uh, I've, I've been very lucky and it, uh, it keeps me out of trouble.
0: Tom, give our listeners
3: uh, uh, an idea of what this uh, next book, the
0: civil war is coming out. We'll have to get you uh, hooked up with Ken Hitchcock. Uh, no, Hitchcock you, is a huge you, lover of of civil war stuff. So what is this, the, what's, what is this next book uh, going yeah.
3: to entail? Hitch and I have talked many times about the Civil War. So I'm aware of his. He was a reenactor at one point, believe not. That's right. That's right. Yeah. This one, they're, they're, uh, I I try to, ironically, the Civil War books I do are kind of like, they end up being elongated feature stories. There's the kind of stories that I like to do when I was a sports writer. It's not like just a factual thing of some battle. I I like to read those books, but I I wouldn't like to write one. This is one. It's a personal story. There are two guys uh, named Armistead and Hancock. one fought for the Union, one fought for the Confederacy, but they were friends in the U.S. Army for 19 years before the Civil War, really close friends, and the Civil War breaks them apart, they have a teary-eyed farewell, two years later they end up meeting at Gettysburg, in Pickett's charge, the most famous attack of the war, where Armistead's men attack Hancock's men, and they both get wounded, and uh, not only do I think it kind of is reflective of what the Civil War did to the country from a, you know, from writing it from a personal level, but that story has been put in myth and legend over the years to civil, to people who follow the civil war to the point that it's, it's been distorted. So this was also kind of trying to get behind the legend of what really happened. There's a basis of truth there, but you know what happens over the years when myths and myths and legends happen. it, 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 yeah. it the, the story out there to the civil war community is a little different than the real one. So it's kind of uh, in some ways correcting the record. And it was a, it was a great research possibility. You know, it, you, if you, you've tried books. Dave has. I know Tom, I don't know if you or Taylor have, but you don't make any money. You're, you're, you're hoping, you know, the famous authors make money. You regular people just, you do it because you love it and you're hoping that you make back the money that you spent on all the research. Um, you do it because, you know, because it's, it's a hobby. So, uh, that, that's kind of where it got going. So that, that book comes out in a couple of weeks. Well, Tom, uh, thank you so much. And,
0: uh, uh, uh congratulations on a tremendous career, both, uh, uh, as, a, as a writer, an author, and certainly for, with your distinguished years, your cup-winning years uh, w- with the Penguins. Uh, uh, that is Tom McMillan, and we will uh, see you next week uh, for uh, Dave Molinari and Taylor Haas. Uh, this is Tom Reed, and we'll talk to you next time on the 66 to 87 podcast.